global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, SDS Nation? Right in time, Chris Anderson shows up. Welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. Having a little mini panic attack because I didn't see Chris Anderson, but there is his lovely face. And Chris, you're hearing us okay? I'm hearing you fine, man. My apologies. I was trying to make myself look better for the camera tonight. Didn't you work. can't possibly Sorry, look better. You cannot possibly look better, Chris. <laughs> and if you will look at his uh, Chiron, as they say in TV, it says Chief Chris Anderson because that is what he is now. But uh, we welcome you back to Surviving Survivor. Uh, New York police appear to have have cracked a 13-year-old case out on Long Island. And uh, the accused serial killer, a guy uh, whose name is Rex Hurman, he appeared in court just this past Tuesday. Uh, he was charged with murder uh, in the deaths of three of 11 victims whose bodies piled up on Suffolk County's Gilgo Beach beginning back in 2010. Uh, but you got to wonder when these killings actually started. And we're going to ask our guests about that. The other big question, uh, and these are the best guests you can ask about it, is where does this investigation head now? Speaking of our guest, best guest tonight, Chief Chris Anderson, formerly a detective sergeant, a retired Birmingham Police Department veteran with 27 years of experience in law enforcement. He co-hosted Investigation Discovery, uh, their series Reasonable Doubt, and previously uh, solved crimes on air in real time for a First 48 Birmingham. He is also a host of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast and author of the just-released book, The Case, and an all-around great guy, and an all-around great woman, Cheryl Mack McCollum. Uh, she is an active CSI investigator. She's an Emmy Award-winning uh, uh, part of CBS 46's CSI Atlanta. She's director of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. She's a writer for Crime Online. Uh, she works with Nancy Grace frequently. She's the co-author of the textbook Cold Case Pathways to Justice. She does it all. And then you've got <laughs> Dr. Joni Johnston, who everyone says looks just like Ashley Judd. And I know we're going to get the comments, uh, which is a compliment, of course. She is a forensic psychologist a private investigator, and a crime writer. As a practicing psychologist, she's worked in uh, both medium maximum security prisons uh, for the Board of Parole for the Superior Court of San Diego. She, too, has done it all and is the author of Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Asked. She hosts her own YouTube channel, Unmasking a Murder. Um, to you, Dr. Johnston, what is the biggest question people have regarding serial killers, since that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I think the most common question I get is basically, is it nature or nurture? You know, are serial killers born or are they made? And I think that, you know, that's a very valid question. I think the answer, unfortunately, in a way, in terms of profiling or those kinds of things, is it's typically a perfect storm, a combination of nature and nurture. So you have somebody who's born with certain genetic predispositions. If they're raised in a certain way, those predispositions, which might be problematic in other circumstances, kind of are dormant and they don't kind of blossom. But if you have that predisposition in combination with some adverse childhood experiences, 
along with some other things that happen as they go on in life, you can create that rare perfect storm that turns into a serial killer. And uh, that was a question I asked yesterday. Are you born, uh, are you a naturally born killer uh, in the case of someone like Rex Sherman? A quick uh, reminder, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are at Podcast STS on Instagram. I post uh, family photos. You see the other side of all this. Uh, you can support us at Patreon. You can also become a YouTube member. The merch store is open. And some happy news today. Good old Karn. Over, over here, the cardboard cutout, the real one became a great grandmother. My niece had a baby, a healthy baby boy. So shout awesome. out to uh, yeah. great grandmother, Carm, now, uh, who will be hosting not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. Um, some news as well. We're finding out there's going to be a press conference tomorrow morning, 1030 a.m. on the Long Island Serial Killer, uh, the latest with Rex Sherman. What that press conference is about, we don't yet know. Uh, we are going to take it live here tomorrow at 1030 in the morning. Uh, we're going to have attorney Randy Zellin joining us and hopefully a former law enforcement officer to help break it down. And then 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow, we've got Scott Duffy and Phil Waters, two of the best uh, investigators who are going to take a deeper dive into what we learn tomorrow. Meanwhile, uh, the victims in all this, uh, as Chief Anderson knows, uh, can't forget about them. Uh, Rex Hureman is accused of murdering three, and he's the prime suspect in the fourth killing. Uh, some are wondering if the press conference is about that fourth person tomorrow. We will find out. Uh, but the three women he is accused of murdering, uh, Amber Lynn Costello, 27, Melissa Bartholomew, 24, and Megan Waterman, 22. Let's keep them in our thoughts. The fourth, uh, who's a prime suspect in the killing of, is Maureen Brainerd Barnes, 25 years old. Collectively, they have become known as uh, the Gilgo Four. Um, Chief Anderson, just from a uh, bird's eye view, looking down from the sky, um, what stands out to you about this case? This is about as heinous as it gets um, if this guy, Rex Sherman, is in fact responsible for all these murders. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's kind of hard to talk about serial killers, man. When, you know, when, like in my career, I, I worked a lot of homicide cases, a whole, whole lot of homicide cases, but, you know, you rarely get to see a true serial killer. And usually by the time you, you figure out that they're a serial killer, they have killed multiple people. So uh, that stands out to me. And and one thing that I've, I've recognized as being a uh, uh, working homicide cases is, you know, the, the way that most of these serial killers get caught quickly is and i say quickly it could be a span of five to ten years that's quick to me uh or even we had one the, the the one of the most well the most memorable cases that i had uh was a serial killer that went from florida all the way up to jeez uh, i can't even remember how far i think it was st louis and 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 the, the, he left bodies every state that he was in and uh, and, th and then he did all of that over the span of about three or four days. So, you know, uh, so there are some cases where you'll find a serial killer case that you can catch really quickly. And then there are some that go for a very long period of time like this joke, this guy did. Uh, so some of the things that just stand out to me is that, you know, there are still a lot of questions that are open. Uh, one thing that I, I've recognized being from serial killers is they don't, Sometimes, and this is probably the way that they get caused, in most cases, they don't change what they do. Uh, they will um, 
you know, you'll see them pick a certain type of person. You'll see them pick a certain area. They'll, they'll, they won't change the, the manner of death. But as I read more and more about this case, this guy had little subtle changes in certain things that he did. And I'm sure mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dr. Ashley Judd <laughs> will probably be able to explain that a lot better than I could. But from a, a, a boots to the ground type uh, uh, work that I did on homicide investigations, you know, uh, those are some of the things that, you know, I, that's just stand out to me. And it's, it's, it's really intriguing. It's intriguing to me uh, being that I'm from this, this uh, type of work. And uh, Mac, to you, uh, we were talking about this last night. We had some Ann Burgess on, Mark Safarek, some of the best criminal profilers uh, in the entire world. Um, and they were doing the math. You know, it goes back 13 years. He's 59 now. Uh, yep. They say it's really doubtful that he only started killing at 46 because serial killers typically start in their teens, if not 20s. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that there's much more that we don't know about? Does this go way further back than 2009, 2010? I don't think there's any question about it. And here's one thing that leaped out at me when I was watching this thing live. When they're bringing out the one Tupperware thing that had the Playboy magazine on it, I did a quick search of that magazine and I think I found it. And I think it's from 1984 and it's the magazine that had the last nude pictures of Marilyn Monroe. That magazine to me in that photograph looked like it was in pristine condition. Like my husband has some baseball cards and things like that that he takes care of. That's how that magazine looked. If he's had that magazine since 1984 and it ain't been up and ripped and, you know, whatnot, that tells you again what is important to this man. And there are people, there's all kind of theories about what happened to Marilyn Monroe. Was she murdered? Was she not? You know, she was found nude and all those sorts of things. So if that's when this started for him, that would check out better for me than start when he was 40. I think you're looking at somebody 24, 25 for sure. Uh, so you think uh, the number right now is three murders. It could go up potentially. We don't know what they're going to talk about tomorrow, uh, but they might tie in uh, this fourth victim, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who was 25 when she was uh, murdered. Yeah. Um, but you think the number is going to be higher than four? I think the number is going to be much higher than four. I think you're going to add states as well as victims. And I was just talking to Lisa Rabakov. Mm-hmm. I don't know if y'all know her, but she is extraordinary. She's fantastic. She does polygraphs and she can text as quick as she can talk in that <laughs> New York accent. And she was, you know, she and I were talking and I think it's probably going to be Barnes tomorrow. The backdrop being the DA's office is clear to me. And that's usually they're going to add charges. And I think the D, you know, the DNA is going to come back and it's going to link her. But again, and, and I would love for, you know, the chief and, Uh, doc to weigh in on this too but people ask me all the time about Gilbert and here's my answer what are the odds that somebody is Mm going to get an escort who's petite who they're going to bring to Long Island and throw in that swampy marsh and they just happen to throw their victim in a dumping ground of a serial killer Yeah, Uh, that's hard for me to believe yeah, a, that's a good point. Uh, Mac, as always, brings up a bunch of good points. Uh, Dr. Joni Johnston, um, 
what about this point that that Mac just made that this Playboy came out in immaculate mint condition from 1984? Um, is that any sort of hint that he was, you know, small hint, big hint, uh, or w- whatever size hint uh, that he was? I don't know super interested protecting these sorts of images going all the way back, you know, four decades or whatever 1984 is at this point. Um, What does that tell you, if anything? Well, I think Mag made a couple of really good points. One being, I think the way people treat their objects or the things they have in their possession do tell us a lot about how much they value them. For one thing, the fact that they're in their home tells you that they value them. So that's certainly a tell in terms of his personality and his values and things that he, he kind of treasures or whatever. And I would agree, and I'm, I'm probably every expert you've had on this show is, you know, who's done research and done work in this area would probably agree that it would be very unusual for him to start killing at 43, 44, 45 years old. I mean, it's just almost unheard of. Now, I guess it's possible that what I would definitely not doubt, you know, I guess, is it possible that he started killing, I guess, in his 40s? I guess it's possible. I don't believe that either. At the very least, though, I think this person has a history of, you know, sexually deviant behaviors dating back for years. So is it possible he started peeping or voyeurism or whatever and progressed like some sex offenders do to rape and, and those kinds of things, S&M stuff that's non-consensual, um, and then graduated at some point later in his life? To murder, I guess that's possible. That's the only alternative I see than him having a series of other victim bodies out there that we're going to discover, hopefully, if, if he did do it. Yeah, which is uh, it's a scary thought. Um, and uh, with this press conference coming up tomorrow, you've got to wonder uh, what else is coming the public's way. And uh, you've got to feel for all the victims and their families who've been in court. Um, and obviously also uh, Rex Hurman's own family. His wife was totally blindsided, which we'll get to. Uh, questions already coming in. Good to see I am not T-Pain back in the house. Uh, I'll toss this one to you, Chief. Uh, is there any chance that Rex's brother was a co-conspirator in any of these murders or any possibility that he has helped him with other murders we may not know about yet? Uh, Chief Anderson, uh, you are a seasoned investigator. Um, there's some strange stories about this brother who lives in South Carolina going after someone with some kind of blunt instrument, uh, temperamental, uh, would you be talking to him and trying to find out if there was any connection? Oh, absolutely. You've got to talk to him or you wouldn't be doing your job as an investigator. I mean, to, to, to go and, and, and know that there's a history of violence, uh, behind this gentleman and that he has a brother who's now, now stands accused, of several different murders in the manner that they were the, these victims were murdered absolutely you have to go talk to him uh is it possible that he's involved yeah it's always possible but it's up to you know, the investigators to number one either link him to the crime or eliminate him from it uh, and you know is it he could he could very well be in, in, implicated in these crimes but you never know but you gotta go talk to him and Chief, in your own experience, what was the difference? You said you handled very few serial killers because there are few of them relative to regular homicides. But what's the, to you, what's the striking difference between your sort of garden variety murderer as opposed to a serial killer? What have you noticed the differences to be? So, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. And I hate to use the term <laughs> garden variety murder, but, <laughs> you know. Probably a, uh, probably uh, an incentive term. You know what I'm saying? Just right, kind right, of right. Uh, I got you. I got you. a person who's murdering out of passion or, mm-hmm. you know, violence, but not intent on serial killing. 
Right. So if you look back at, at, at most homicides, it's been my experience. Most homicides are, are uh, the, the people that are responsible usually have some sort of connection with the victim. I, I think I've, I've said that hundreds of times with you. They, you. There's usually some sort of connection, whether it's uh, they were friends, ex-lovers, uh, they were uh, had a relationship of drug dealing. It, it could be any type of relationship. Uh, and if you find the connection in the majority of your homicides, you'll be able to solve it. But when you deal with a serial killer, a serial killer in my profession uh, are those whodunit cases. And and the, the, the term whodunit is used by us homicide investigators to tell people, you know, you don't have any clue because they are random victims. Not, most of the time they are random victims. There is no connection to this person. You could have like the, the, the relationship is not like, like a long term, a long standard relationship. Like in this case, this guy was getting escorts. Well, how many, uh, you know, these, these girls were probably seeing two, three, maybe four men per night. So that's, that's not a real relationship. That's not a real connection. So it makes it harder when you're an investigator, when there's not a connection, you can, and this is just a whodunit case. And especially when you don't have, a, it's a nobody case. Those are extreme, those are extremely hard to solve. Very hard. So kudos to the investigators that uh, have been working these cases because I know how hard these cases. I have a case right now that is a nobody case. I know exactly who did it. I, I, I believe that there is evidence that exists to link the person who's responsible. But this guy has walked this earth for close to 30 years. It may be over 30 mm. years now that I think about it. Uh, and, but because we don't have the body, there's not enough evidence to, to link him to the crime. So uh, kudos to the investigators. It is the most frustrating uh, uh, type of investigation that you could ever conduct because sometimes you get very, very close, uh, know who's responsible and can't charge them just because you don't have enough evidence to do it. But you still have to keep going. And Chris, does that still eat away at you now that you're retired from the Birmingham PD, the fact that you can't, can't quite nab this guy? Absolutely. I, I, I was thinking about it on my way home today, you know, uh, and there are multiple cases that I have that 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 were, you know, I, I solved a lot of my cases, but there are a few of them that did that went unsolved. And I retired in a time and I hate to take over the interview, but this is something that that I have to say that there, uh, there, there have been a lot of cases. I love to see the way that the, the, the technology and the science is becoming more involved in in, in, in in investigations because I retired at a time where if you look at it now, I retired at a time where the technology was in its infancy. You know, we were just beginning to, to get to DNA and it was just coming back within the time span. I remember a time span where <laughs> it would take months to get some sort of DNA back from and, and it not even linked. It's just to have it coded. You know, it would take months. But now you can get DNA back in, in days, hours, minutes, you know, because of all the new systems. So I love to see the way the technology has has increased in investigations, but I also have some uh, problems with it. So, you know, yes, uh, do I get frustrated? What I love, I, I, you know, I, I, on, my, on my drive home, I was thinking about, man, you should, if you could retire and just go back and work about five or six of the cases that I know with the technology that exists yep. today, I know I have five or six cases that I could close within a year. Yep. Yeah. There you go.
That guy better watch out, whoever he is. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Laura Warner says, uh, my two Southern faves, Mac in Atlanta and Chris in Birmingham, and I'm right on the Georgia-Alabama border. There you go. Um, Our friend Catherine Regier in Hawaii, aloha uh, to you, Dr. Johnston, wondering what the chances are of a confession. Uh, He reportedly, you know, said initially he didn't commit the crimes and began to cry all six foot six of them. Um, in every direction, as I like to say. But uh, what are the chances this guy confesses if he did commit these crimes at some point? I think they're pretty slim. I mean, he does not seem like the kind of person who would confess unless his back is up against the wall, you know, maybe to avoid the death penalty or something like that. I think if he eventually was to confess, um, he might get a thrill out of that, at that point, kind of entertaining everybody with all the stories of what he's done and how he did it and those kinds of things as a way to kind of relive things and, um, you know, maybe torture the investigators who are sitting in there listening. Th- that wouldn't surprise me because I think he's shown an interest already in the media and the, the coverage and that kind of thing. But I think um, unless it comes down to, again, the, you know, the writings on the wall for him, I don't think he believes it is at this point, um, even though there seems to be a lot of evidence against him. But I think it would take a, a tremendous I like the death penalty, which I don't think even think they have it in New York. But it would take something very compelling, I think, for him to confess. And there's a lot of news in this case, stuff that came out since our show just last night. Um, Suffolk County prosecutors, uh, Mac, I'm going to throw this one to you. Uh, they've now announced publicly that they want to collect more DNA evidence in their case uh, against Rex Sherman, and they're seeking a court order for a uh Buccal swab. I don't know. Never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. First of all, tell everyone what is that and why are they doing this right now? A buccal swab is basically a Q-tip where they go on the inside of his mouth and they swab it to get those cells to get his actual DNA to say this is absolutely him, the person that you see, the name that we know. This is his DNA, so that they can again cross-check it. So there's no question what came back on that pizza, you know, slice and the pizza crust and the other evidence that hopefully that they're going to be linking. And I think that's one thing they're going to address tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, Baby doll. Haven't seen her in a while. STS nation in the house. Happy to have her Uh, right back to you. Dr. Johnston here from uh, our friend in Ireland, Miss we last see either the panel or the panel members know whether society ever truly knows the full body count of serial killers. Could they all have more unknown deaths? Um, Dr. Johnson, is it possible uh, with a guy like Rex Sherman that we never know the totality uh, of his crimes? And I assume different serial killers have just different personalities. Some want you to know the total. Others even embellish the total. But what say you about this question? I think it's a great question. I think absolutely. Um, You know, there are so many serial killers who have gone one way or the other. You know, they end up being charged with two for example, and that we know they've committed 10, 15, 20. They won't tell you where they are. We don't know where they are. And so we're kind of left. They go to the grave saying, I didn't do these or whatever. So it's very hard to trust, I think, (laughs) what a serial killer in general says. And then then you have the flip scenario, right? We have somebody who's caught um, and then they confess to 500 murders or 300 murders because they want to somehow win this competition for having the highest body count. So there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that there are plenty of serial killers who have killed more people than we know about. Um, and then again, there's some who have, have uh, killed less probably than they're saying, that they're bragging about. Yeah. Uh, Raul Thomas, uh, Chief Anderson, 
I'd like to know how New Jersey is doing on linking unsolved homicide cases and or missing person cases during the time of Rex's first marriage while a resident of New Jersey. I know Atlantic City, there was a similar similar type killings in Atlantic City and Atlantic City authorities have come out and said they don't believe there's a connection. But uh, Chris Anderson, Cheryl said uh, earlier that she believes it's going to be multi-state uh, murders. Um, how do you even begin as an investigator um, on this case, on this particular case, to go through the various states that he's been in, including South Carolina, New Jersey, I believe Massachusetts. Um, how do you even start? How do you cross-reference everything to see if this guy is your man in other killings? <clears throat> That's where you, where your cooperation with other departments come into play. You said now, I mean... And I hate to date myself, but you know, it seems it, it, some of this stuff is it seems almost wow. I wish we could have had that during my time, and I just retired almost what, eight <laughs> years ago. You know, so uh, but that's where the cooperation between uh, departments come into play. You know, you you send them copies of of what you what you have. You know, uh, uh, not everything but you send them copies so you can email it to them you can pick it up pick up the phone and call them uh, you know now you can facetime them and tell them you know there's so many ways to connect with other departments back in my day oh gosh i hate the way that sounds too but back when i was investigating cases and i was working homicide cases you had to send them uh, a, a teletype message on the computer you know i remember having to do that uh and there's no way you can get uh, all everything that you need to have in those little teletype messages. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it, I think it's going to take a lot of cooperation between pro cooperations within the departments. Uh, they're going to have to go back in their cold case files, uh, look at some of these cases, even go back. I mean, you know, this guy's in his when he's in his uh, he's 59. 50, 59, yeah. So he's almost 60 years old. So yeah, you got to go back to when he was a teenager and look at everything. Look at all, pull all your cases and then. You know, one thing that I that I hate that makes cases like this harder is because he, you know, he 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 uh, he targeted a group of people who we all know that uh, are, are some of the most underreported uh, uh, victims of, of of criminal acts. You know, so there may be some that haven't even been reported yet. You know, I would and and there is so many ways that you'll have to do it, but it, it's going to take with it's going to take you know, cooperating with other investigators, letting them know that, hey, we have information that this guy stayed in this area during this time. Do you have any unsolved cases that matches this criteria? And then you have to widen the scope of the search also. So, yeah. Hey, Joel, can I jump in here? 100%. I think the chief and Doc will agree with me. Absolutely, he targeted a certain group. But let me tell you about that group. Let me tell you about that track. There is not one prostitute, hooker, sex worker that don't know who's in your town. Mm -hmm. And now that you've got a face and now that you've got a name, you're going to have people that are going to come forward and say, I knew that guy. I wouldn't fool with that guy. I wouldn't get in his car. Here's the reason that is so freaking critical. These are people that are violated and harmed and just misused in every facet of their life. Mm -hmm. They get paid to do things wives and girlfriends don't want to do. They wouldn't even ask them to do that are so twisted and so freaky 
and so just vulgar, and they'll do it. So if there's somebody that won't fool with him, that will tell you the level this man was on. Mm. And uh, that's interesting. Also, it's an interesting point to make because uh, he is not the kind of guy that just blends in. Uh, he's a monstrous guy. So, uh, you know, even at 22, you know, same size, and they're going to be able to, um, you know, hopefully pick him out of uh, potential lineups, things of that nature, if it comes to that. Uh, can't agree with Baby Doll more. You look good, Chris, always mm-hmm. with the fire emoji. There you go. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited to uh, get to Mac and, and, and the chief on the investigation, but a couple more things with the DNA here. So prosecutors came out. They say that they already have this DNA link uh, to Rex Hurman from a hair found on the body of a 22-year-old murder victim, Megan Waterman. Uh, they're now looking for more uh, evidence. And the quote from the assistant district attorney uh, if the defendant's DNA from a buccal swab sample matches the mitochondrial DNA profile developed from Megan Waterman's remains, there is scientific evidence of the defendant's contact not only with Miss Waterman and where her remains were discovered, but also with the burlap utilized to restrain and transport her human remains. Um, to you, Mac, once again, uh, as a CSI uh, investigator, um, how critical is just a single hair that can tie all this together potentially? It is absolutely the money tree. And, you know, like the chief said, when you're talking about working a scene that is swampy and wet with animal activity and the decomposition is already in full swing and they were able to find a single hair on burlap, you're, you're talking about hands and knees with, you know, your eyes right on that evidence. So you're talking about, to me, an investigation that we're going to study because they've done such an incredible job here, period, from taking the pizza crust and getting D- DNA to finding the one hair strand and linking these folks together. Because, again, you may not have hair on all the burlap, but it's all the same. Mm-hmm. And of the four of us, the four of us in the last year have probably been to a hundred dinner parties. You ain't seen no burlap in anybody's house. I mean, people don't use that. So that is unusual enough for you to stop exactly what you're doing and hang your tree right there every time. Uh, snazzy trinkets, jewelry, press conference tomorrow. I'm hoping more charges are coming. We are going to carry that live, uh, hopefully yep. 1030 AM with a couple of, uh, investigators and an attorney. Uh, Dr. Joni Johnston, I immediately, when I read about all this, um, said, what's the deal with this burlap? Uh, do you have any thoughts, uh, you know, uh, from your perspective, um, was it some sort of a obsessive compulsive type thing where he had to use the same material? Um, is it just coincidence? Any thoughts on why burlap is involved in all this? Well, I think the significance might be the fact that he puts all the victims in the same thing. So I think that may have some symbolism for him. The burlap itself may have just been a convenience thing. I don't know that we can make too much about that. I, I've heard that he's a duck hunter and that there's yep. some connection possibly with this burlap, you know, canvas burlap or kind of a camouflage burlap. So I think, it, you know, I think it is kind of hard to make a, some kind of psychological um, analysis of what the burlap itself means. But I do think the fact that he, the way he placed them, the way he wrapped them all definitely has some psychological significance for him. Uh, Papa Bear, a shout out to her from Moscow, Idaho. Of course, uh, 
now the infamous home of where the uh, murders happened at the University of Idaho. So a place that's near and dear to our heart. We're thinking of Papa Bear and everyone in Moscow, and uh, hopefully justice will be served there uh, as well. And uh, seriously, best guests ever. I tell you all the time, it's not just a tagline. It is the reality. We get you the best <laughs> guests in all of true crime, and you are witnessing it uh tonight uh catch up here uh missing nancy grace great to see cheryl mccollum tonight um and then from Catherine, wow cheryl interesting bio uh they're all all interesting uh peeps here um more to talk about with uh wife asa ellerip uh she's been in the news a lot dr johnston but uh the daily mail caught up with her she of course is now the estranged wife of rex huerman uh, she returned to the family's Massapequa home last week, um, and she's now saying, uh, and I heard she may have been on television as recently as uh, this evening, um, so she's out there talking a little bit, but she said uh, in this interview that she does not want to walk down the street. She doesn't want to hear her neighbors gossiping about the gruesome 13-year-old slayings. Uh, the neighbors, she says, want the house gone. Uh, the exact quote here is, look, I don't want to walk down the street. I heard what people said about us. I've heard it. I heard the other people in the neighborhood. They want the house bulldozed. Do you understand? She's telling the reporter, please, I can't talk anymore. Um, this is always difficult because they are victims as well. We had Carrie Rawson on last night, the daughter of Dennis Rader, otherwise known as the BTK serial killer. Uh, she's dealing with all the trauma still. But um, is the media overstepping their bounds, in your opinion, by trying to approach this woman this early on? I think they are. I do. I mean, I understand it. I definitely do. You know, because we all want to know what she has to say. We all have a lot of questions about their relationship, about how long, you know, what her thoughts were. Did she notice anything and those kinds of things? But I do feel like, you know, she is in a state of shock, I'm sure, and depression and all kinds of things, grief. Um, and so I think that those answers will come. Um, with, with time, mm -hmm. as things start, as the as the court process progresses, and you know she has a, a more of a chance with her family to kind of regroup and kind of form their family in a different way. So I have to say though that I do think the media, again, understandably, want to hear from her. But I, I do think that um, some advocates like the BTK's daughter, like Sherry, and, and some of the other people have done a very good job um, of presenting this family as victims as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a that's progress. Because I know in the past, um, because there, you know, these crimes are so horrendous, when we have a serial killer who's killed such innocent people and who were out doing whatever they were doing, it doesn't matter, you know, they, they weren't asked to be murdered. Um, you know, we're all enraged by this. We are, we're enraged by this. And, and so it's very easy for that anger to spill over to the family of the perpetrator. And, you know, I've seen just the most horrendous things written before on Facebook pages and, and you hear about people writing things on their houses and that kind of thing. So I do think even though I'm sure they're feeling overwhelmed, I'm sure they're hearing horrible things. I do think the media has also made more of an effort to separate out Rex Hureman from his wife and his family. And I think that's a, a very good thing. Yeah. And uh, I did speak. I've become friends with Carrie and, uh, let her know that we're all thinking of her. And if she needs to take a break, she's well aware because uh, she does get hounded uh, by the media when stories like this come up because there are very few children, understandably, of serial killers who want to speak publicly. And uh, there are a lot of uh, true crime fans out there who want to know. And so uh, she gets tugged on a lot. And uh, 
told her she's got to look out for herself first. But um, Amen. New, yeah, New Jersey, cool chick. Got to give her a shout out. My home state uh, does it again. Awesome panel of expert guests. And then I love these. Frankie Figs, friends of the show. Ooh, Chris Anderson, <laughs> love him. Um, so getting those. Uh, speaking of Chief Chris Anderson, uh, Rex Hewerman was in court uh, on Tuesday and he reportedly uh, was glaring at people in the courtroom. I don't know if that's just his uh, resting glaring face or not. But um, basically, uh, the lawyers came out and said, look, there's not going to be a plea deal here. Um, he has said, I did not do this. Uh, this is according to his defense attorney, who's a very savvy defense attorney, a guy named Michael Brown. Um, did any of this surprise you? Is Michael Brown just doing his job? Um, what do you make of uh, the court hearing? Oh, no, I, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. You want to do as much as you can to sway anybody that may be on the fence and, and sitting up on that jury. Uh, is, so if they're going back and they may see an, an interview, you don't want to get out there and say, well, I don't know if my guy is innocent or guilty or not. Not as his defense attorney. No, you want to do as much as you can to help push your case, push your agenda in defending him. Uh, but I do kind of want to go back to something that we said, and 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 uh, we've talked about this and and about the DNA uh, 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 that was found in the, uh, the uh, that belongs to the defendant in the case. We have to be extremely careful uh, about uh, uh, DNA, especially with the tech the way the technology is going today. Mitochondrial uh, uh, DNA and hair DNA, it's it's. It's easy to exchange. And I am, look, I'm a cop. I am a homicide investigator. I, I cut my teeth in investigations and homicides. So there were plenty of times where I, if I saw some hair that belonged to somebody, oh, I'm, 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 I'm looking deep into this person. Very, very deep. But now, and I, and I wouldn't have changed my mindset and, and, and if I did not have a case that we did on Reasonable Doubt that showed me Look, it, we have to be careful with this DNA. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to say the young man's name because we are currently uh, working out something uh, to have him on Crime and Cookie Juice. But uh, this young man was arrested, charged, and convicted for murdering his girlfriend. And the one thing that convicted him was a small sample of hair. Um, that, that hair was found in an article of clothing, which was his pants, uh, and it had blood on it. Uh, he stayed in prison for 14 or 15 years, I, I want to say it was, uh, after he was convicted, and he's maintained his innocence the entire time. All right, we covered the show on Reasonable Doubt. Now, it, 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 that sounds like an open and shut case to me. I was ready to go once I read the, the, you know, the, the write-up that they did on the case you know, I see his DNA. He's got he got this girl DNA in his bloody hair and his clothing. Ah, you know, why are we even here? That's what I was thinking. But the more you peel back the layers and the more you really, really look into the way that uh, uh, DNA is collected and how it's transferred and how easy it is now to transfer DNA and someone else find it. I, I, I really it really opened up my mind. That case, we got that young man some help. Uh, we aired his his episode on Reasonable Doubt, and now, and this just happened recently, they found more DNA belonging to another man. Officers went and questioned that man, and he had the weapon that was used to kill the victim. 
This young man was 18 or 19 years old when he was convicted. He'd never been in any trouble. He got in the room with a, some very aggressive investigators and he made an, ad, an admission to the crime. And it was the admission and the DNA that they found in his pants is what got him convicted. If you look, when we looked at the case, I interviewed him and I didn't think about it until after we had, I had finished the interview. He said that he went to his girlfriend's house the night that she was missing and he waited for her for hours. And I said, well, where did you wait on her? Well, I just sat on the steps. I sat on the steps. When I started looking back, I could picture a person that's responsible for this crime, locking all the doors, leaving out of the house. And maybe if they walk, cause they walked through the crime scene, tracking a hair at, on the stairs that he walked down. The, the, the guy that was convicted in this case, sitting in that same area and that piece of hair getting connected to his pants. Now it's not like he had any blowback or anything on his pants. It was a simple piece of hair that wasn't even connected to his pants. When the, when the crime scene investigator opened up the pants, the hair falls and he finds it. So we have to really be careful uh, especially us as investigators, and 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 look, it, it takes a it's it's hard to find DNA, but it's easy to transfer it. So we have to be careful about how much we rely on DNA. We have to peel back the layers and look at how that DNA was collected, how it came back, and hopefully there's some corroborating evidence because that's the key, especially in this case that it, he that needs to be some corroborating evidence in this case to make it a slam dunk case. And that, that's a very interesting point, especially in light of what's going on with Brian Koberger and that touch DNA on the sheath. Mm -hmm. and by the way, there was news in that case today that we'll cover with Scott and Phil tomorrow. Uh, they've come out with an alibi, I believe, saying that Brian Koberger was driving around at the time of the murders. Uh, that was something that broke right before we went on air. So uh, not the best of alibis, I don't think, okay. but uh, we'll see what comes of that. And uh, obviously, uh, I just read the headline there uh, in a couple of tweets, so we'll have to dig deeper into that just to show you we are in fact a global show we've got bridget in australia uh great to see you home good to be back home and then we've got bedfordshire in england which i'm probably mispronouncing um back to you uh mac and we're about to get into the meat and potatoes in a moment of the actual investigation right. um crimes this the crime scene uh investigation at the house but just before that um in court on tuesday they announced Suffolk County prosecutors that they handed over about eight terabytes of material. That's about 2,500 pages of records, a hundred yeah. hours of uh, surveillance video. Um, is that, they say that that's basically a, a, a drop in the bucket. Um, how much evidence will pile up in a case like this? <laughs> Y'all watched it. I mean, they've got storage rooms, they've got the house, they've got the vault, they've got his office, they've got computers. Let me just lay this out. They probably have, if this were my case, I would want an airplane hanger. <laughs> Seriously. And I want tables where I can put pornography, weapons, restraints. I, I need it all out. I need it all separated so that I could start to understand. Because what the chief was saying is correct. Take the hair off the table. You have his cell phone and a burner phone that are moving together. <laughs> That's bad for him. You've got searches on his computer that are bad for him that they've already put out. 
So that tells you they already knew. He was looking at torture porn. He was looking at Asian tinks. He was looking at these different things. And then lo and behold, you've got an Asian male in the same area dressed in women's clothing. Now all the other victims were nude. So again, if this were my case, I want to know why he's got on clothes and I want to know why they're women's and I want to know who they belong to. Is he wearing clothing from another woman? I want to know that. I want to know why seven burner phones. I want to know what is that about? Are those phones trophies from some of the victims? Or are those phones representative of a different state? The answers are coming, but he picked it. If Rex is the killer, he decided seven phones, not four, not one. He decided the dumping ground. He decided the burlap. He decided the strangle manual, you know, manual strangulation. Here's the other thing, and I want to make this point before I forget. Men will tell you what's important to them because it is what they spend their time and money on. So if it's $1,200 for golf clubs, if it's $5,000 for golf clubs, there's your answer. Rex is telling you those firearms mean the world to him because he encased them in thick cement. He also had 259, and the chief will tell you, when I get rid of guns in the evidence room, those guns are anywhere from $50 to 1200 So if you're just looking at 350 as a just a minimum cost for weapons, he has $100,000 worth of guns, even though the front porch of his house is being propped up by a two-by-four. Mm-hmm. The house is not important to him. Those guns are. Do you understand? Doctor, so that's what I would focus on. Interesting. I want to get back to all that in a minute. But uh, Dr. Joni Johnson, I was going to ask you a different question. But since Mac brought it up, what about what do you make of the fact that his house is in such uh, poor condition? Uh, but then, you know, Mac talked about this Playboy cover that was in mint condition from 1984. That's an interesting dichotomy right there. Mm-hmm. What do you make about the fact and he's an architect also? Uh, so what about the fact that he had such little regard for his actual home, the physical appearance, but appeared to have other things, including uh, some kind of vault or a dungeon of some sort uh, that investigators found? But what do you make of it? Yeah, it is very hard not to see it as a metaphor to some extent. You know, you have this outward appearance of this professional who's going to work in Manhattan and he's dressed up. He looks presentable and he's got this nice address where he works. And then you come home and you see what he's really like, you know, kind of the the, the things that are falling down. They're old. They don't mean much of anything. And I think it does reflect a lot of respect to the dichotomy in this man, that this man really is leading a double life. He's almost showing us that, you know, physically. You can see where he's working and you see where he is at home. Um, And then the vault. Yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see. It's hard for me not to think. And obviously, I'm not like our two other guests who are the investigators were going into the crime scenes and stuff. It's hard for me to imagine if he is guilty of this, that he didn't kill at least one of them in the house. Um, Just because of the amount of time I think he would want to spend with them. Um, and to have complete domination and control over them while he was doing whatever he was doing to them. So, you know, when you talk about the lock or the vault or all those kind of things, I, it, it just makes me wonder. Um, you know, there's this, but it is just so, 
interesting to me from a psychological standpoint to see this incredible dichotomy between this house that he lives in and he's an architect as you pointed out and then his work environment and how he presented himself at work that's super fascinating because we were talking about with the profilers how uh, dennis Rader, the btk killer uh he turned it cubing he could you know he could change uh the side uh he was showing you almost uh instantaneously, depending on which side uh, he wanted you to see. Um, Chief, to you, to Dr. Joni's point, um, do you think he killed in that house? Oh, it's very, very possible. You know, look, (laughs) one thing about criminals, you you know, and I won't call it lazy, uh, but sometimes, you know, they, 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 they'll take pathways of uh, less resistance. I mean, if you feel like you can bring a body into your house and not alert your family, you know, and you're the type of person, you're the type of uh, a serial killer that likes to spend a lot of time with your, uh, with your victims and, and they, they are precious to you, then absolutely, Doc is absolutely spot on. Yeah, I, I would not doubt it, it that he, he, he killed in that house, but I can tell you this, the investigators, God, the investigators are combing through that house with a fine tooth comb as they should be. And they should be looking into his background to see if there is the possibility that he may have had access to another uh, property or, or another area, because uh, I, I would, I would seriously doubt that he picked up a person, committed the murder and then discarded the body. No, he's he's not. He's he doesn't he doesn't appear to be that type of a a serial killer. He he appears to those are his possessions. Those are the things that he loved. Just like he didn't take he he wouldn't take care of the roof of the the, the front porch of his house. He's going to take care of his his next victim because those are precious to him. And and Mac is absolutely. I think both of you our guests tonight they are uh, absolutely spot on. Uh, Bundy data, right back to you, Chief. I have a feeling you're going to shake your head. Bottom line, locate how many call girls have gone missing in the area from 1990 to 2021, missing women that fit the description. But it's not as simple as that, is it? Because um, just because he targeted, you know, escorts now, is it possible he killed a different type of woman 30 years ago uh, who wasn't petite, who didn't have light eyes? Is it possible? Yeah, it's very possible. Look, I, there, there's something unique about this guy. Uh, I, I hadn't, you know, I haven't dissected every bit of his his evidence like like our guest has. But there's something unique about him uh, uh, being a serial killer. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that he's like the the normal uh, uh, serial killer that we're used to seeing and reading about. Uh, you know, he's he's a little bit different, and that's the reason why he was able to operate and get away with it for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beachy Broad, best guess. I'm a big fan of Max. She is so smart. Yes, she is. Followed by this. Don't know how I feel about this. I saw jo- uh, Joni Johnson in the four squares. I stopped to stay and listen. Uh, that means she's not stopping for any of us, but that's okay. No, no. Um, it's all good. It's all good, as long as you stopped and stayed. Um, Dr. Joni, I wanted to ask you this question earlier. Um, do serial killers get this specific? Uh, all the uh, escorts, uh, sex workers were petite and had light eyes. Um, is it possible that he was that fixated that if someone came in with, let's say, black eyes, he just wasn't interested um, and it would save their life, essentially? 
there's a lot of variability among serial killers. And we used to always think they would pick out this very specific, um, you know, type that looked like their mom or their girlfriend broke up with them or whatever. And I think what we've put the research shows is that most serial killers have a preference. So somebody they prefer to be a victim, but there's also the issue of availability or accessibility. And so a lot of times it's a combination of the two. So, and sometimes you will see um, serial killers, even the ones who have a pretty strong preference and are willing to basically stalk a potential victims, if there's an opportunity that, that presents itself, they'll take advantage of it. So it, it, there's just a lot of variability, but I think I would, it's fair to say that most serial killers have a preference, but again, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to take advantage of opportunities um, that come their way. Mm. Uh, so Mac, I was very excited to talk to you and the chief specifically about this part. So this uh, crime scene investigation at the home lasted almost two weeks. Um, You're active CSI. Have you ever spent that much time at one location? (laughs) No. No. Let me tell you what you're seeing. You are seeing next level serial killer, which requires a next Next level level response. Period. And and what I noticed right off the bat when the medical examiner showed up with the storage unit, that was kind of like a, oh, crap moment because they only show up for one thing and that's human body remains. Then you noticed at the scene, you had their CSI, you had detectives, you had people from multiple different agencies, which was really important and necessary. Then the kicker. Here comes dogs, here comes ground penetrating radar, and then here comes the crime lab. And let me tell you something, that don't happen every day. Mm-hmm. So at that scene, you had the the prosecutor, the lead detective, um, the lead CSI, and the lead person from the crime lab with all these tools and other agencies involved. That to me solidified they are doing next tier professional response in every way. And if you think about it, everything they're doing is a parallel investigation. It has to be. At the same time they're working the house, they're thinking of the storage room, they're thinking of New Jersey, they're thinking of Nevada, they're ta- you know, they're thinking and talking to South Carolina. Hey, Rhode Island is right there. Massachusetts is right there. One of the victims came from, you know, Connecticut. Oh Lord. So again, you start adding these states, it's common sense. Where has this man lived? And think of what they already know, y'all. They've already told us he kills when his wife's out of town. She's from Iceland. So when she goes out of town, it's probably for at least a month at a time. So again, to Dr. Joni's point, if you're into torture porn, that you have to take your time to torture somebody. That ain't quick. That's a cigarette butt. That's a little knife, Nick. That's a little, I'm going to choke you a little bit and bring you back. It takes a while to act those fantasies out. So is there evidence of the home? I would put some money on it. <laughs> I would so, um, oh. Authorities did reveal that a quote unquote massive amount of evidence had been recovered from his home. Um, there were a number of uh, items of evidence. Uh, This is the DA speaking now uh, who said, but I'm not going to say especially where 
um, and also refused to comment on whether or not the search uncovered any trophies. They did say they did not find any uh, human remains. Let's hold it there. Uh, Chief, to you, this is the stuff that I'm fascinated by because, you know, when you're four years old, like my son, you want to grow up and be a police officer. Um, and I'm sort of the same way. Explain how a case of this magnitude, when you walk into a house, when, when the Cheryl Mack McCollum walks in there, you know, in her hazmat <laughs> suit, the crime scene investigators, who is running the show there? Who's telling who what to do how does it all how does it all go down i want to know tell take us inside this house tell the truth chief okay all right i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna tell you the truth this, inside this is the how child. i know it. inside the crime scene as much as i want to say that this is my investigation i'm the lead man on this case and you gotta do what i tell you to do i have zero control when it comes to that crime scene I can't tell her to do nothing, you know, and it makes me so angry because I got an A-type personality. You need to have that A-type personality when you're working homicide cases. You are literally in the room with a killer. So you have to have a certain mindset. But man, on that crime scene, I can't tell you how many times that I tried to tell my crime scene investigator, hey, I need this done in the next two hours so I can work my case. And they were like, okay, well, I'll be done in 17 hours. You'll get the case when I get through with it, you know? So no, when you went the, 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 uh, and, and, and man, reasonable doubt, working, working with reasonable doubt or, or being a host of reasonable doubt opened my eyes up to so many things that I was doing wrong. Well, I won't say doing wrong, but I could have done better in investigations, man. So, uh, I just threw that in there. But here, here is the here is the, uh, the 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 thing. What happens in a criminal investigation is there are two parallel investigations going. When you think about the dichotomy that works between a homicide investigator and a crime scene investigator, they are a, they they should work together as a system of checks and balances. What she finds on that uh, crime scene should be backed up by the evidence that I find in my investigation. Absolutely, and that's how it works. They they work together. I, I'm not above her. She's not above me. We work together and our work together is what helps our criminal justice system work as it should. It should be a system of checks and balances. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I would love to be say I was in charge of the crime scene investigation. No, I'm not. I have zero <laughs> control of what happens because you know, when it comes to testifying, I can't testify to. Uh, That's right. Uh, the, the, the DNA that was found on the crime scene. I may have a general idea. I will have a general idea of the, the DNA that was found, but she's got to testify to that. But she can't testify to what was said to me uh, uh, by the defendant during my interview or during my interrogation because she wasn't there. But all of that works together. And that's how our criminal justice system should work. It's no I'm not above her. She's not above me. That's interesting. It reminds, it reminds me a lot of news. There's always a push and pull between the reporter and the photographer because they usually edit the piece. You get a great interview. You want a certain soundbite. The, the editor or the photographer will say, I'll put that in if I've got time to put that in. And <laughs> exactly. But it is, it is a, That's exactly how it is between the homicide investigator yeah. and the crime scene. It's yeah. a true team effort. So, so Mac, to you, yes. you go in there, you're in your fancy hazmat suit all in blue yes. or white. 
Uh, what yes. are you doing in there? When you get into that house, how do you know to turn left, turn right? What are you looking for? How do you know what to swab? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, especially a high profile case like this, how do you know where to even begin? That's a great question. And I'm going to brag on the chief for a second because what you just heard is somebody that is a solid investigator because he can remove his ego because the reality is he is in charge and the reality is he can tell me what to do, but he knows that that scene, that's not the right call to make. So, you know, you often see on TV where somebody rolls up and the CSI goes up to the first you know, person on the scene or the first detective and said, Hey, Joe, what do we got? I never do that. I don't want you to tell me. I want to tell you. So if you go in that scene and the chief's already done a walkthrough, and then when I get there, I do my walkthrough and I pinpoint what I think I see. So is this an accident? Is it a suicide? Is it natural or is it a homicide? Then when I go back out and say, chief, this is what I think. If we're on the same page, we're fixing to work the daylights out of that thing. If he says, wait a minute, I thought this was a suicide. Where are you getting homicide? Sugar, I got to go back in for a second. I'll be right back because I have clearly missed something or he has missed something. And then we need to go together and then we need to pinpoint what are you seeing? What did you notice that I didn't? And then to me, that's where, again, the teamwork. So I want to be by myself for a minute. And then the communication, it is constant. And again, what I saw on the very little video clips that they did release, tractor trailers. Did y'all see those trailers? I mean, they were putting, y'all, I can't even imagine the amount of physical evidence. I can't. And, you know, they're looking in the yard. They're looking under the roof. Did you see them lifting the roof line? It's like, oh, my Lord. And just imagine, I heard somebody being interviewed that used the word hoarder. If that's the case, here's the problem at a crime scene. And Dr. Joni and the chief, I'm sure, can back me up. I often take things as evidence that I don't know how it fits right now. So if there's a photograph that's ripped up, I'm taking that photograph. I don't know why it's ripped up. Were they mad? Is it a love triangle? Is it a breakup? I don't know, but I want it because it doesn't look right. It shouldn't be here. If every single room in the house is just tore up, but the bathroom is pristine, I need some luminol and some swabs because something went down in that bathroom, right? And how- so. I have so many questions. I mean, how are you logging and keeping track of this? And let's say you find that picture that's torn up and you want mm-hmm. that. You, you take out your paper bag, you put it in an evidence bag. How do you log all this in real time? How well, do you the keep first, track of it? Well, the first I'm going to go through first and then I'm going to video it and then I'm going to take photographs and then I'm going to go back and put markers and then I'm going to photograph again with the markers and then I may do another video with all the markers and everything in place. So again, we can see it. And then I'm going to go outside with the chief and with the lead detective. And I'm going to say, look, I got 57 things. Am I missing anything? Because you remember OJ Simpson, they Mm -hmm. had a big list. They had everything. They located the bloody fingerprint on the back of the gate, but nobody went back and collected it. So that's what you don't want to do. So again, I'm going to run through chief. Am I forgetting anything? Detective, Anything at all? Okay, let's go over this list one more time. I got 57 things. And then if somebody says, hey, what about that shovel? Dang it, I forgot the shovel. How, how can I forget the shovel? But I'm going to go back and get the shovel. Because it had soil on it, not clay. And the yard is clay-based. 
So you're going to want that shovel. I just forgot it. It was maybe too obvious. But again, team, team, teamwork. And we're going to get back to that because I am fascinated by it. But uh, from Sue B to you, Dr. Joni, um, why is a toddler not listed with the other victims? I was I was not aware of that. Um, thought, I thought the toddler was. But um, bigger question to you, Dr. Joni Johnson, uh, what are your thoughts on why a toddler is even showing up um, in this uh, basically grave site? Uh, Terry Marsh, the toddler was a child of Peaches. I don't know what her real name is. Peaches was... Uh, another sex worker who I think was discovered in a different location back in 97. But what do you make of this, Dr. Johnston? Yeah, my first thought is that this is just um, collateral damage, if you will. And that's a horrible way to put a toddler who's been murdered. And so I apologize for saying it that way. But, you know, I, it's hard for me to imagine that he actually targeted this toddler. Um, and the fact that she did or he did belong to another um you know, one of his other victims makes me makes me think that even more. So my sense is somehow they set up a date or whatever. Maybe she had to bring her child along, but she didn't have childcare, and so as a result of that, he decided to also murder the toddler. That's my that, those are my thoughts. Mm. And Chief, it's another, yeah. another perspective. And, and Chief, it's important to point out that even though these bodies were discovered in 2010, they de- ne- not necessarily were killed then. Uh, we don't know how far back necessarily. So uh, this kind of goes back to the original point that this could have been going on for many years before. And and also, what about the other, I believe there's seven other victims in this, um, on these grounds, uh, Gilgo Beach. Um, are, do you believe at this point that they will find that there's a link to Rex Hewerman here? Or is it just so random that they would be here? You know, uh, I don't believe in in randomness i don't believe in coincidences when you when it comes to murder cases so uh when you look in, into a case like this i think you, you have to understand that just like you said these these murders happen years before these bodies are being found in most cases so that means that this person has a 10 7 5 year advantage over them so the investigators they have to be methodical in everything that they do so if you find another body, you can't just assume that, you know, this body, uh, because it's found in the location close to other bodies, that it's a part of this crime scene. You should never do that because that is uh, that is a tunnel vision when it comes to investigating cases. But you have to always keep that in mind in the wider scale of things. Okay, I may not be able to collect connect him to this crime, but as I'm investigating this case, everything about the body and the way that we found it, I need to keep it in mind while I'm looking for evidence that links this person to this crime. It, it's, it's, it, you can never, ever, ever, ever uh, uh, have tunnel vision in cases uh, like homicides. I mean, that, that's, what, that's the thing that screws up our criminal justice system when you have such tunnel vision that you wrongfully convict someone that was absolutely innocent of a crime. Uh, and that's usually what happens when in, in a lot of those cases. It's not, it's not being, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it's not lack of education. It's not lack of knowledge. It's usually tunnel vision. It, it boils down to that one simple thing. And you can usually pick it out in, in uh, 
a lot of these cases. I want to just give kudos to Max. She gave a, she dropped a lot of jewels when she was speaking uh, just a minute ago, a whole lot of jewels. Um, and, and some of it may have gone over uh, some of our heads, but I my do. head maybe. <laughs> no, I'm sure it did. You know, but I, I, one thing that I, I, I wrote about in my book, The Case, uh, I talked about going on crime scenes uh, and how we would have a, 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 you know, every time I came out on a crime scene, because, I, you know, homicide, we're usually the last ones that are called out. So I get to a crime scene and nine times out of 10, you'll have a group of cops there over there talking about you know, uh, the case. And they're usually saying about giving their own theories about what happened. You know, well, she's like this. So, you know, this must have happened and all this other stuff. And 90% of the time, if those guys are over there, I'm going that way because yes. I don't want their speaking or the, the way that they think to affect me and the way that I investigate my cases. I want to go in with a clear mind, uh, and see things the way that I see them. And that way I'll investigate what I saw and not what I heard. That's a, that's an amazing point right there. It's so interesting to me that you just said that because back to news, um, I always made a point whenever you show up at a crime scene in news or, you know, anything that's going on, there's always a gaggle of reporters. And I would mm-hmm. always make it a point to keep my distance because they, it's a herd mentality, right? And you start yeah. to think like they do. Yeah. So I'd always look or try to try to stay just with my photographer, go down the, the street that they weren't going down mm-hmm. uh, and, and see if I could find something. So it's, it's interesting to me because uh, there's some analogies uh, between the two professions, I guess. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, to you, Dr. Johnson, from Lucy Bell, uh, many men who hire escorts are regular clients and develop relationships accompanied with fantasy that is more than transactional. Rex Hewerman had multiple encounters with the victims before killing. You think we're going to find this out that he was, you know, seeing these women, women on a, on a, you know, multiple times basis before he would then go in for the kill. Well, this is the first I've heard that there's evidence that he has seen the victims more than once. So that's something that I have not heard before. I did find it kind of interesting that I, I believe it was his last victim, Miss Costello, had apparently there had been um, a ruse, I guess, that had happened the day before. She went with him where her boy, her um, boyfriend, alleged boyfriend, had come in and um, it ended up taking his money, Rex Hurman's money, without performing sex. And I guess he was angry about that. And I thought it was kind of astonishing that he had managed to convince her, you know, after that, because I would think that would be a very frightening situation or a scary situation because you've basically taken somebody's money from them that you would agree to go back with them. And so that's the only thing I've heard that might suggest either that he was incredibly persuasive, um, which, you know, that's not the, I guess, impression I've gotten from what other people have said necessarily, or that maybe he had had more than one encounter with her before. I don't know, but that is the first time I've heard that. And but I was, just want to just comment, if you don't mind, Joel, just briefly a little bit on what our other two, Mac and the chief said, which is just the cognitive biases that we know in psychology and how it's just, it's just kind of wonderful to hear as investigators and detectives and chiefs and stuff, how that's such a powerful part of the investigation, how important it is mm-hmm. to go in um, without hearing 
from other people initially what their impressions are because there's so much research that suggests that even when we think we're going mm -hmm. at it and we're totally looking at it objectively with fresh eyes, if we've heard things from other people mm -hmm. about their yep. opinions, it absolutely influences us. We start mm -hmm. seeing things differently. And so it's, it's, it's just fascinating to hear that from both of you. I would, uh, I would agree with that for sure. Um, Mac, I got to ask you and you got to answer honestly, um, at a, a scene like this, um, would you be scared at all of what you could find in that house? Scared? No. Um, I would not want to find things that would disturb me. But again, the way I approach my job, I have a son that's a goalie. And when he started that position in lacrosse, I would always tell him, you're the last chance to stop this person. Everybody else has failed. So I see my job very similar. The only way this person is going to get convicted is if I do my job correctly. I'm the last shot. So I've got to bag and tag and collect legally. I've got to do it scientifically. And so to me, that's more my focus. Um, I don't know that I've ever been frightened about anything. No. Mm. I'm usually kind of adrenaline pumped up and ready to get in there and you got, you know. your red, you got your Red Bull. You're you're ready to go. Um, I don't even need Red Bull sugar. I'm telling you, those <laughs> lights and sirens go off. That radio starts blaring. I want to get right in the middle of it. How how much so. time do you usually spend at a scene, just to give people perspective? Because here they were there almost two weeks. Well, I mean, again, I mean, everything has variables, and everything you know kind of relates to you know a ton of things all at one time. But if it's let's say it's an entering auto, I mean, it could be an hour, hour and a half. If it's a homicide. I mean, you're talking about six, eight hours, you know, I mean, you want to be there as long as it takes. So again, if it's something unusual, if it's a double scene, if it's a scene that looks staged in some way or gives you pause, then it's going to take a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, I usually tell people ain't no such word as debtor. So take your time. Nothing else can happen to this poor person. So do not get in a hurry because, you know, you don't want to miss something. And we don't have the pleasure of going back. Um, you know, you can always revisit a scene, but I'm talking about where it's there, where it's live, where everything is. The cigarettes are, you know, butts are going to be gone. The trash is going to be emptied. So you want to be the person, you know, look in the commode, look in the refrigerator, look in the trash can. If you've got somebody telling you, oh, you know, he goes to church every time the doors are open. Well, I sure couldn't find a Bible in that house. Right. But then you open the refrigerator and it's, you know, full of beer and whatnot. And then you look in the bedside table drawer. <laughs> Ain't no Bible there either. And you're pretty shocked what you find there. So, again, the story starts to build itself. And I usually tell rookies, you don't tell the scene what happened. The scene is going to tell you what happened. Uh, Detective Phil Waters investigated over 400 homicides. He always says that on the show. Always. always true. You let the scene tell you. hundred um, percent. What do you make of those disturbances in the ground that they found? Me? Yeah. Listen, there is nothing they took out of that house that ain't relevant. We may not know what it is, but I'm telling you, everything I saw them do, they had cadaver dogs. Then they had ground penetrating radar. Then they went to digging. And not just with, you know, little shovels or something. They had earth moving equipment. And what they found, they laid out 
and they photograph just like I would do on a sheet that's clean, evidence, you know, evidence free. So when they start putting these pieces of puzzles together, it could be something like a belt buckle or a zipper or jewelry, something that would have been on a victim that he wanted to keep close to him possibly. Again, we don't know yet, but I watched them. They all had all the protective gear in the world on. They photographed everything. They located it with the technology that they had, and they took it. So it means something. Chief, what do you make of, uh, we talked about a little bit earlier, the mattress and the vault. So Suffolk County DA, uh, Raymond Tierney, uh, he said that they did uh, find this vault, but uh, they would not confirm or deny the mattress. The vault, uh, according to them, is big enough to walk into, um, and it's in the basement. Uh, it was like the rest of the house. They said it was cluttered. Uh, as a seasoned investigator, uh, is your antenna going up when you hear about this? Absolutely. A- absolutely. We are, I think we all agree that, that um, you know, a lot of the, these, these uh, murders happen in the area where he felt more comfortable, you know, and that just goes into um, the type of person he is, you know, there are certain things that are, are, are special to him. So he wants that more, more that, that time with it. And I, and I say he, of course, he stands accused. I don't want to convict the man until after he's been convicted. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, um, yeah, my antennas are, are completely raised. I'm kind of surprised that they say that it's, it's, it's cluttered uh, because, um, but I mean, that, that just, that just kind of goes back to, to what the doctor said, you know, that they, they are, everybody, all, all, they all have differences, you know, the, 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 the serial killers that I've dealt with were, or the one that I dealt with was, he was very messy about what he did, but I found uh, one case that I know that this young man would have been a serial killer had we not caught him when we did. Uh, he mm. killed two young ladies and uh, he killed both of, well, he killed one inside, no, he killed one inside of his house and then he killed my victim uh, inside of her house and he was very meticulous in the things that he did to his victims. You know, he, he would always pose them in a way that every orifice of their body was exposed. Uh, and uh, the victim that he killed in his own house, he took her out and put her inside of her vehicle and he posed her inside of uh, uh, his own, uh, her own vehicle. Um, wow. You know, so so these are some of the things that you see that these are just differences. And I told you about the truck driver. He was just killing girls inside of his truck and throwing mm-hmm. them out of the car. So, you know, you, you everybody has their own specific thing that they are into. Well, I mean, and it, it, it goes to it stands true with serial killers also. So, mm. you know, yeah. Does it raise my antennas that he has this this this? I'm not going to say it's a torture chamber because I hadn't seen it, but I can imagine this is probably where he committed most of his, his, his acts against his victims. Wow. Uh, heavy. Um, back to NJ Coolchick here for you, Dr. Johnston. Uh, when he, Rex Sherman, finally realizes there's too much evidence to not confess, do you think he'll do what Gary Ridgway did and lead law enforcement to more victims? He gives me Gary Ridgway vibes. Uh, any take on that? There's a couple of good psychology questions here 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that is another great question. I mean, I'll tell you my opinion about that. And my opinion about that is I can't imagine Rex Hureman thinking there's ever too much evidence not to confess. Um, the only way I can, and I can see him getting convicted and having nothing left to lose. And at some point, not having any other attention or anything like that, I can see him at that point kind of embracing his actions, you know, co cooperating with law enforcement, kind of getting a lot of attention, maybe taking them to, to other bodies or those kinds of things. But I personally see that happening way down the road if he does that, because like I said, I think he is going to claim that he's a victim in this whole thing as long as he possibly can. Um, it's hard for me to even imagine him doing a plea deal. I see him going all the way through the process. And then, like I said, later on, maybe when he realizes that his appeals are exhausted, he's not going to get out, then maybe he pulls that card. Yeah, and uh, he, he said that, uh, at least the defense attorney has said, that there will not be a plea deal, at least at this point. Uh, Sally Vell, if I understand this question, do you think they want to be the expert that the FBI comes to for answers on other serial killers and their motives or what they'll do next? I think the question here, if I if I understand it correctly, uh, do you think these guys get off on on knowing more than authorities or law enforcement and having them kind of beg them for answers to help solve their crimes? Is that a, is that an aspect of all this? Well, we know that the BT, BTK made a big statement. I don't know if you heard it, but uh, yeah, um, he came forward and. Um, you know, basically said, this guy's my clone. Mm -hmm. I predicted exactly how he would be. Um, I, you know, we're just, he's just like, he wanted to be just like me. So I, I absolutely think that sometimes, you know, these serial killers do want the recognition. They do like the thought that I know my comrades, right, better than anybody else does. Um, and that's why they, a lot of times they will agree, uh, sometimes reluctantly to even help law enforcement try to catch somebody because it boosts their ego mm -hmm. and their narcissism. Well, one other one here that I think is interesting uh, from Strawberry Wine to you, Dr. Joni. I know we'll start to wrap it up. Uh, could his first murder have been accidental during a violent assault and he enjoyed it so much that he continued murdering? Does that happen where they, you know, go a little too far and, and enjoy it a little too much? It sometimes does happen. So one of two things tend to happen if there's this progression of behavior where you get, you know, um, sexual assaults and then eventually the person a, you know, commits a sexual assault and a murder. So sometimes it's just pr the progression of the fantasy. So they're escalating kind of more and more and their behavior is kind of in response to their fantasies kind of get, ramping up. And, but, but I have definitely seen serial killers who at least have claimed that their first victim, that's what happened, that they were engaging in sexual assault, things got out of hand, the person died and it was the ultimate thrill. And then they continue. Now, whether that's true or not, only that person knows. But I definitely know a few serial killers who have claimed that to be the case. Mac, Jay says Mac is the greatest, which is why I'm going to ask her the next question. You kind of mentioned this in passing about burner phones. So I was reading something today on this, um, and it says that uh, the case hinges largely on the cell phone uh, records, evidence, including the burner phones that he thought was going to conceal his identity. Uh, mm -hmm. But apparently the more you use these phones, the more there's a pattern and patterns are what get you caught. So is it sort of a fallacy that these burner phones keep you safe if you're trying to engage in criminal activity? Well, for the criminals listening, yeah. <laughs> so here's the deal. He made a couple of mistakes here. One, he kept all the phones. 
So typically, like let's say you're in the mob, you're going to get a burner phone, you're going to use it for a day, you're going to get rid of it. You're going to get another phone. He didn't do that. He kept these phones. And then not only did he keep the phones, he kept them with his phone. So as he's traveling to the different places, the phones are traveling in concert. So again, that's a bad look. What I think's going to happen is this guy is a trained, educated architect that's going to follow him with these crimes. I believe we're going to see journals, maps, things that he has kept, codes that he has. So, for example, we may not believe that the victims, none of them were shot, but that doesn't mean some of those weapons weren't used to control them. Right? So, I think he's kept things. I think he's kept some type of, like, dossier, basically, that has shown what he's been doing, very similar to a BTK. I think we will. he will take that mechanical mind, and there will be some type of spreadsheet, basically. So I think the things that you saw them getting out of those houses and storage rooms, the banker boxes are full of files. And I think it's going to be, again, a money train. Hmm. Uh, Simba, the Brazilian, best regards from Brazil. Uh, we are international. Thank you for all your expertise, shared in easy to understand manner. Wonderful variety of accents. Mac, they picked up on your Bronx accent. I love that. Um, awesome. And look who's here, everyone. The one and only Carrie Rawson. Uh, she's in the chat. So shout out to Carrie. And I'm glad right she's there. here uh, right now because uh, one thing I wanted to get to, uh, two things. Um, one of them is that uh, the family now of Rex Hurmans has found this unlikely ally, and that is the daughter of another notorious uh, serial killer, the Happy Face Killer, a guy named Keith Jesperson. Uh, Melissa Moore is his daughter. She launched a GoFundMe campaign for uh, Hurmans' estranged wife. They've uh, raised, as of that time, $13,000 from 390 donations. Um, Dr. Johnson, what about people like um, Carrie Rawson, who are brave enough to come forward, and the daughter now of the Happy Face Killer, uh, even going so far as to start a GoFundMe. Um, that gives you a little, uh, restores your faith in humanity. Earlier, I was going to ask the chief, you know, how does he keep his head straight seeing all these horrible things? But this gives us a little faith in humanity, doesn't it? It does. And I think, and I don't know if you were listening earlier, Carrie, but I was kind of giving you a shout out earlier because I do think you and a couple of other people really have just you know, the few of you have really done an incredible job of helping the media understand that victims has a lot of different meanings. And when you're talking about a serial killer, that the family of, of that perpetrator are also victims that are reeling and dealing with grief and dealing with shock and horror and all kinds of things. And I think that I've, I've not before this particular case seen um, the media try to be more respectful of the families and presenting them in a way that separates out this family from the perpetrator. So I, I want to give a shout out to you because I think you've had a lot to do with that. Very well said. Um, Chief, to you, one of the things um, Carrie's saying, this is good to hear, having a better day, guys. Thanks so much. Good to hear. Uh, Chief, to you, um, you know, one of the things that I think kind of upset Carrie in, in hearing the news about all this is the way this house was really ripped apart because it similar stuff uh you know she dealt with similar things um but 
you know, is there any way around that from an investigative standpoint? I mean, they've got to they've got to do their due diligence, Mac. You want to take that since you're the one in there actually yeah. uh, doing the digging and stuff. But uh, how do you respond to that? Here's the deal. If that's my scene, I'm going to go in the walls. I'm going to pull up the baseboards. I don't know where he's hidden things. Every single person that grew up in a home has a hidey hole, whether it was for cigarettes or your diary, whatever it was. That's his childhood home. I got to find that hidey hole. And then, you know, there's things in my head like John Wayne Gacy. You know, you've got to go look. And unfortunately, you know, that's just part of it. And it's the ripple effect of a case like this, nobody gets out of there without some trauma. Not the first responders, not the victims' families that are watching this on TV, praying that there's evidence, but then not wanting there to be anything of their loved one in that house. Not his family, not the neighbors, nobody. Nobody's getting out of this thing without some harm. And frankly, that goes to Carrie Rawson too. She was going about her life and this news broke and then everybody in the world's contacting her. All of her stuff comes up to the surface, and Dr. Joni can talk about that. For the officers that had worked a child case the weekend before, is now looking for how many bodies? Four, mm-hmm. 10, 20? I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. But nobody's going to win on this thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody. In case you missed it, uh, Mark A. Carrie was the star of the show last night, despite a star cast. We had Mark Safrick, who's amazing, and Dr. Ann Burgess, who is literally uh, named a living legend. Uh, So she was in good company last night. Uh, Dr. Joni Johnston is a living legend in my eyes, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and crime writer. She stepped in last minute, so we really appreciate it. She's the author of Serial Killers, 101 Questions True Crime Fans Asked. She also hosts her own YouTube channel, Unmasking a Murderer. Um, Dr. Joni, your uh, final thoughts uh, tonight um, as the story obviously is going to continue to uh, unwind in in different weird ways as uh, we know there's a press conference coming tomorrow morning. Even Yeah, I mean, I think my last comments are just questions. I mean, I feel like we are at the very beginning of this investigation. And so I'm just looking forward to seeing what unfolds. I'm happy to see that I think there is more sensitivity than there has been in the past in terms of treating victims' families, whether that's um, Rex Hurman's mm-hmm. wife and his children, or whether that's the victims' families who deserve a tremendous amount of support and love as well. Um, and I you know, appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about it. And I, it is, it's so great to see so many people who are interested in criminal justice and seeing, you know, fairness and, and justice served. So I just look forward to seeing what's going to happen next. Well said. Uh, Royal Castriata, super sticker, one hair, you were there, but you got to remember what the chief said. You got to be careful with, uh, <laughs> with the DNA. Carrie Rawson, everyone give her a virtual hug. I could use the hugs. Uh, I'd love to give Cheryl Mack McCollum a hug. Uh, she is a current CSI investigator. She's an Emmy Award winner. She's done it all. She is a writer for Crime Online. Uh, she holds a master's degree in criminal justice. The list goes on. She's the author of the textbook, Cold Case. She does it all. And uh, 
the name of your podcast is Zone. I don't want to screw up the numbers. Zone nah. Seven. Zones. Oh, I can't screw up those. Why did I think there was? I thought there was four digits. I don't know why. Zone Seven. Can't screw that up. <laughs> and Seven is my mom's birthday, so now I will never forget that. So, uh, Mac, um, what's next for this investigation? It's going to get deeper and wider and more twisted. Period. <laughs> it is. I'm telling you. Yeah, um, it is. If you had, a, let me let me put you on the spot. If you had to put okay. a number on uh, his victims, are, are you going double digits? Easy. We're already in double digits. We're already at eleven. They just hadn't said it. Yeah. But you're talking about somebody that conservatively has had forty years, potentially. And and let me tell you about this guy. Now he's when I say he's next level, there are a ton of serial killers that will return to the scene of the crime. That might even show up and stand off in a distance at the funeral. This man kept the victim's phone, called her sister, called her sister by name, and told her what he did to her sister. So when I tell you next level, baby, y'all got to get ready. And we got, we got to be real supportive of everybody. Because um, I will tell you, you want to know how dark and dirty that house was? Look at... Um, Delphi, Indiana, the wife so far has stayed by the husband. She literally said to one media person, he's my person. Okay. This lady, how quick did she get a divorce? So she processed all of that information they were telling her. Your husband's been arrested. He's been arrested for murder. We think he's a killer of more than one woman. We think he's a Long Island serial killer. And she went and filed for divorce within days. So that tells you, if she was able to do that, her knowledge inside that house was violent, controlling, manipulative. She's been abused for a long time. Yeah. Uh, we heard from Laura Richards last night, uh, the crime analyst, and she was talking about coercive control and exactly mm -hmm. that. So it'd be interesting to uh, find out more about that. Uh, Kim Catagrione. Cheryl, I'm from the South and have many things in common with you. My 11th grade students heard your podcast and said, dang, either Mrs. or Mac. I don't know if that's a typo, but one or the other. So <laughs> got to be careful with your podcast. You got 11th graders listening to it, uh, Mac. So no, no curtain on there. Well, there's no profanity. Y'all come on. Is it me or does Mac have the best voice? I could listen to this voice all day long. But uh, another guy with a deep south. Yeah, I was going to say, you're the other one with that voice. Uh, it is Chief, formerly Detective Sergeant Chris Anderson, retired Birmingham PD, veteran with 27 years of experience in law enforcement, hosted Reasonable Doubt, uh, was on A&E's First 48 Birmingham. He is the host of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast and author of the book, The Case. Buy it on Amazon right now. Uh, Chief. You've got the final say. Uh, what do you expect? What are you looking for next in this case? I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with everybody else has said. That you are, we are really just at the beginning of this case, the beginning of this investigation. It's going to get more and more twisted. Uh, you know, uh, you talked about, uh, do we think that he's in, in the double digits? Yeah. You, you think about it, if, if he has a 40-year a run, you know, and he killed maybe two a year. 
Mm-hmm. That's 80 people. <laughs> That's 80 victims, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is, that is just crazy. And I think it's more than that because he seems, if he's progressed to the, to, to, to an, uh, 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 a point in his life where he feels emboldened enough to to call a victim uh, or, or a victim's family member and brag about the killings that that shows the type of personality he has. So he's not going to be. It's not going to uh, 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 quell, quell, quench his appetite with just one or two, and he's getting away with it. So yeah, I, I do believe that that you'll see multiple other victims. And I agree with Doc when she says that there needs to be more support for all victims within um, uh, these, these, these circles of crime, you know, not only the, the, the victim's family members, but the suspect's family members. And I think Mac mentioned this, and I, I, like I said, Mac, I love you, dude. You, you have been dropping jewels all night. I'm currently writing a book right now uh, about the PTSD involved in law enforcement. And then we all know in law enforcement, you know, it's kind of taboo to say that you're a cop yeah. and yeah. You, you suffer from PTSD. So my book will be more about my journey with the undiagnosed PTSD that I've went through years mm-hmm. and years of turmoil and not understanding what it was that was wrong with me <laughs> and not seeking the help that I needed to seek. Uh, Good for you. To survive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. It, because it, it happens, it's out there. And I think that if, if we we, un, we unmask the veil uh, that has been cloaked around law enforcement about this, this uh, issue, then I think we'll open up a lot of doors into finding out uh, uh, true uh, 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 healing within my profession. Very eloquently said. And uh, Dr. Johnson is shaking her head in agreement and I uh, couldn't, Dr. Johnson, I mean, it is important. These first responders see some of the worst things in life. Uh, and I think we over we, we all take it for granted, right? I, I agree. And I think the impact can be cumulative. You know, people, the, just mm-hmm. the number of violence, the amount of violence people are exposed to, the detectives are exposed to, and the kinds of violence you're exposed to. It has to have an impact on people over time. And it's time that people, like you said, realize that. And I think you're the perfect person to do that, to write that book. Thank you. I appreciate it. Agreed. And uh, just to show MC Spunky, let me know that Carrie was in the chat. She's probably been in here for like an hour. Just so you guys know, I'm looking at notes. I'm looking at questions. I do come prepared and uh, the comments kind of lag behind a little bit. So uh, apologies to Carrie if she was there. I had to read this comment three times, uh, but it's funny. Elizabeth Whitney, Chris's wife as a hot husband. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'll make sure I tell her that tonight. I I was going to say, I hope the chief's wife is listening. But uh, I hate saying goodbye because I can go on for uh, another five hours and we'll get everyone back uh, soon enough, um, hopefully uh, in the next week or two, to continue this story. A quick programming note, tomorrow, 10.30 a.m., there's going to be a news conference uh, from Suffolk County, Long Island. We are going to do our best to uh, take that live tomorrow with some guests, and then we're back tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern time for Great Scott, it's your true crime, Phil with FBI's Scott Duffy and former Houston homicide detective uh, Phil Waters. And uh, Sunday night, I'm looking to do another show on uh, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. We do that on Sunday night sometimes. I did an interview, a one-on-one with Ross Colthart, who interviewed the UFO whistleblower. And that uh, 
that episode has like 350,000 views. People are really interested. Uh, and uh, I don't know, maybe we're not alone. Who knows? Maybe there are crime scene investigators on other planets. We will, uh, I we dig will, it. Find, we will find <laughs> out one day. But until then, love you, America. Love you, San Diego. Love you, Atlanta. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. (laughs) 